How many happen to have seen uh, the movie Midway that came out a few years ago? Not, oh yeah, a whole bunch of you. There was one part in that movie that was hard to watch, and uh, I mean a lot of it's hard to watch when you're watching a war movie, but it was that part where the two guys are on the, they're, they're on the battleship or the, the uh, destroyer Makigumo, the two down fl- American flyers, you remember that part? And they were trying to get them, and this is actually, they tell me that this last movie on Midway was the closest to actually getting the history right, and this did take place. It may, it may have been a little more theatrical, given that it was a movie, but this guy, Guido and, and, and uh, O'Flaherty, were down flyers. They were brought aboard that ship. They tried, they interrogated them. They tried to get them to give up information about the fleet, and they refused. And, of course, in the movie, you know, very boldly, they get their last cigarette, and they shove them overboard with something attached to their, a weight attached to their legs and their hands tied behind their back, and, and, and they drown. Um, hard, to, hard to see that. You see these young men with as we would say, their whole life in front of them, and they willingly allow themselves to be put to death. And you say, why? Why would somebody do that? Well, on, on the one hand, obviously, they loved their fellow sailors. Um, they loved the cause that they were fighting for, the United States, and they were willing, in that sense, to give up their life. And I think also they, they truly believed in what they were fighting for, and they believed that there was a chance this is after Pearl Harbor. This is Midway becomes the real turning point in the naval battle where, where things start to, to go the other way. But it hadn't been fought yet at this point. It had only begun, and they wanted to believe that they could win and that they could turn this thing around. And so they just did not, they did not want to be part of the, the reason that the Allies would have, or the Americans would have lost that, that battle. They gave their lives, but not knowing the outcome. We are a lot like that when it comes to being soldiers in, in the kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen? We may be called upon to give up our lives. In one sense, spiritually, we have given up our old lives, haven't we? That's, that's demonstrated when we go through baptism and, and what, that, what that signifies to us, that, that, that being dead with Christ and, and, and risen with him. We become part of his kingdom. And, and, uh, and yet, unlike those two very brave uh, flyers, we know the outcome of the battle that lies ahead. Even when the Lord has long since taken us on to be uh, at home with him, we know the final outcome. Look at, toward the end of the book. For those that don't know the book, that's, that would be the book of Revelation. We get to the end of the book of the Bible, that, that, uh, end of the Bible, that's the book of Revelation. It says in Revelation 11, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet. I guess that would be the last trumpet. It was the seventh angel. Huh? Um, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And that's a great hope that we have. We are not, we, sh- we get discouraged. Let's, let's face it, we can all get down. And man, I am, I am prone to that. And there's just been so many things lately that just, just like felt like waves sweeping over the top of me. But, but we should not grow discouraged because no matter whether we're the ones that have to step off the ship you know, with, with, an, with something tied to our ankles, uh, we know the outcome. Our king is going to be victorious. We are on the winning side. The name of Jesus is unstoppable. 
We have hope as we look at this today. So uh, we're picking up where we left off. It's going to look a lot like last time in terms of the, the theme because it's really part of the same. We're just, we're just resuming as it were. So the big idea today, it's still dealing with the name of Jesus. We see this throughout the passage, the name of Jesus, the name of Jesus. So proclaim the name. Proclaim the name of Jesus with confidence. So that's a little added part from last time. Would have been true last time too, but it's particularly true as we go forward in the text here, and you'll see that. Consider the ways in which Peter, as he's standing there, sort of a good representation of, of, of us as, as we will face opposition. Um, consider the confidence that he has here. He's, he's got them on the ropes. He's, he, he's being interrogated, but really he's in kind of... You know, from a human perspective, he's kind of, he's, uh, he's in the driver's seat. First of all, consider this boldness. Consider the boldness. It says, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Peter and John are bold. We saw that last time, didn't we? The, the, those, those high priests, they make the mistake of saying, hey, yeah, you're going to have to tell us now uh, by what name, by what power you did this. And Peter's like, you want the truth? <laughs> you can't handle the truth. I mean, he, he ends up, he delivers the truth to them, and they're, they're sorry that they asked the question. That's the boldness that, that we see um, here. Let's start with that first of all. We have every reason, like Peter, to be bold as witnesses because we bear the name of Jesus Christ. And we need that boldness. People in this culture today need bold Christians, don't they? Because the world is all wishy-washy. I know there's people out there and they're protesting and they act like they've got it all figured out and they know exactly what they believe. That's a smokescreen. They're back and forth. They don't know what to cling to. It does no good for us in the church to be, you know, ambiguous and, and, and soft pedal things. We need to be bold like Peter was. We're, we're living in a similar environment where Christians are in that minority. We need to be bold. Our culture needs for us to be bold. Before we move on from that, I, I, I want to point out a few things about that boldness. Um, notice it was Peter and John who were bold, and they were bold together. Does that mean anything? I think it does. Now, how many believe that God can make us bold if we have to stand completely on our own alone? Everybody believes that? I believe that. But is that normally the way God works? Are we usually thrust upon just standing alone? I don't, for the most part, in God's grace, a lot of boldness happens when Christians cling to one another. I think it's no accident that Jesus sent them out by two. I think it's no accident that it's Peter and John. So think of that in terms, if you want to be bold for the Lord, you need your brothers and sisters in the Lord. Don't operate as a lone ranger. You need to be, and I'm not just saying in twos, but from two on, we need the fellowship in order to be bold. Is boldness something that you can just flip a switch and turn on? I don't think so. I, I would say no, but what we can do is we can look at this and we can ask ourselves some questions like, if I'm to be bold, why am I not bold? And probably the first answer is, in my flesh, I'm not a very bold person. How many would, like, I think just across the board, 99 and 9 tenths percent of the people on the planet are not by nature particularly bold people. 
Most of us like to go along, to get along. We don't want to stand out. It's the nail that stands up the highest is the one that gets pounded down the first. And we all kind of, you know, I, I get that. And, and, and we feel that way. But we look at this, we see that, that boldness and we remember how it is that Peter's bold. How's he bold? With all the other, and, and you could give a lot of explanations and, and reasons, but what was the bold, where'd the boldness come from according to the text last time? And Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, we, we need that filling, and so as, we, as, we, as we're together in the Lord, seeking that boldness, understanding our need for boldness, then what we ought to be doing is praying that the Lord fill his people by his Spirit and grant us the boldness to stand out in this culture in which we find ourselves. And also, before I move on, always consider the name of Jesus, the name of Jesus itself. When you're declaring the name of Jesus you have every right to be bold. You have every right to stand up and be bold because of the name you're bearing, because of the absolute worth and power and magnificence of his name. All right, so secondly, don't worry if you're the common man. See, what surprised the leaders most, or one of the things that surprised them most in terms of their boldness is that these guys were not scholars. They were not like Paul. Paul comes along and he's got the credentials. He says that in the book of Philippians. He's, he just reads his CV, you know, um, out to the people at, at Philippi. He's like, these are all the things that I could be confident of. And one of those things was he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was a scholar. He had been trained by Gamaliel, who was particularly well-known among the ancient Jews to this day. Can, you know, in their, they still know who that guy was. Paul was trained up under him. But these, these guys, you know, Peter and John, who are they? They're just, a, they're just a couple Galilean fishermen. Now, they're not exactly Joe Dirt. So when you picture, if you've been picturing them with mullets, let's cast that aside, okay? They're not... They're not Joe Dirt, but what they are would be Joe Blows. You know, the ordinary Joes, the average guy. This is, this is what they look to be. And it doesn't mean, as we, as we kind of come at this, it doesn't mean that we have to jump to the conclusion that God cannot use scholarly people, well-trained, educated men. I mean, look at Paul. We just talked about Paul. Yeah, he was the cream of the crop, and he did incredible things for God. I think, it, I think the really scholarly people bring a lot to the table. I do. I, I look at somebody like Carl Truman. I, I, I don't know if you know about this book that Carl Truman, he's a, he's a scholar. I believe he's a Baptist, but I could be wrong about that. Anyway, he's a good Christian man, good scholar, and he just came out with this book called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, which I think will come, become a classic. It, it's just a tremendous book. But man, that thing is rough sledding. You just about have to have a doctorate to, to work your way through the book. There were words in there I didn't know. Yeah, but I'm going to use them now. I mean, you could bet on that. I saw a word I literally never, I had to look it up, and it wasn't like a jargon term. It was, a, it was an English word that I literally never laid eyes on called rebarbative. Have you ever heard of that, rebarbative? It doesn't matter. I'm just saying, scholar, right? There are scholars that are being well used of God, and, and they do incredible things. But, but here's the deal. God, according to Paul, in, uh, in 1 Corinthians, says that he hasn't, God hasn't chosen very many of those sorts. 
It's not that they don't exist. It's that he hasn't chosen very many of them. This is what it says. It says, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Now, is that advocating foolishness? Does anybody see that as a, hey, go and be a fool for God? No, it's not. The Bible, it talks about seeking wisdom. But what it's saying is, is that God uses ordinary, common, uneducated men like Peter and John to proclaim the gospel and the name of Jesus. If you're not a scholar, but you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you ought to allow yourself the boldness to proclaim the name of Jesus. Because ultimately, it's not about how good you can argue your case. It's not about how many big words you can string together, whether you know the word rebarbative or don't, you know. It doesn't matter to God in terms of what God can use for the name of Jesus because it's really in the name of Jesus to begin with. That's where the power is. That's the name by which a person can be saved. That's the only name by which a person can be saved. So we can be ordinary. So don't let that, do not let that hold you back. Big part of that is also whether you've been with Jesus. Whether you've been with Jesus. See, you can kind of watch the hamster wheel turning in, in, in the heads of, of the high priests as, as they're working through this. Now, I'm still in verse 13 here. And Peter has, has taken the, here's this uneducated guy who's really taken them to school. I think they're standing there with their cheeks flushed from em embarrassment, the way he sort of flipped the whole script on them, and it says they were astonished, and they recognized that they'd been with Jesus. Boy, these guys are like Sherlock Holmes, aren't they? That they figured that out? It's like, wait a second. Where is this coming from? Hmm, let me think about this half a second. Oh, right. These are disciples of, of Jesus. This must be, ding, 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 this must be where they have these things, you know? It makes a lot of sense. If you think about the way rabbis trained people, even though they didn't have that formal education like, like the Sadducees would have expected, nonetheless, they had been with Jesus for three years. That was just kind of how, it, that you didn't go away to university and live in a dormitory or a frat house. You followed the rabbi. And if, you know, however long that took, three years, they were with Jesus. And we need to be in the same school. If you want to be bold for Christ, you have to get into that same school. I'm kind of thinking of the, the John 15 thing again. Is that a little repetitive? Do we talk about John 15 too much in this church? The abide principle? Yeah, we, we need to be in Christ. We need to be in him and be abiding in him, dwelling in him, drawing from him, drinking him in, if we are going to be bold for him. By faith, we've been united with Christ. Our lives are hidden with Christ in God. And so the Christian life ought to be about nurturing that relationship, about doing everything that we can on our part, trusting in God, trusting in the work of God's Spirit, but we should be nurturing every, in every way that is available to us through his word. Whether it's the congregation being part of a local church. You need that. You want to be, be built up in the faith? Look at Ephesians. How do you get built up in the faith? 
part of a local church. You sit under the preaching of the word of God. You join with other Christians in prayer. You put your faith to practice with other Christians and so on and so forth. But in every way you should be seeking to just deepen that relationship with Christ. Part of why we don't feel bold, how many, I won't ask for a show in advance, but how many of you don't feel particularly bold for Christ? So much of why we're not bold for Christ is because we are not much with Christ. We're we, we not digging deep. We're not digging, digging deep down in those roots, you know, like it talks about in Colossians, where our roots go deep down into Christ and then we are built up in him. We need that if we are going to be bold. And here's a correction of sorts that to offset some of the point of the previous point, not to set it aside, but to kind of clarify it. Though the disciples were uneducated and common from one perspective, they were not ignorant and they were not satisfied to remain ignorant. You know, we just covered the book of Luke. How many times in the book of Luke are the disciples scratching their head and saying, well, huh, wait, Jesus, well, why didn't, why didn't it work when we tried to cast out the demon? Wait, that, that parable you just told, what were you talking about? The, the, the seed and, and, and falling on the different soil and all that. What was that about? What did that mean? Lord, we don't know how to pray. Teach us to pray. Lord, we don't know where you're going. What do you mean you say you're going? We don't know where you're going. They kept asking. They kept digging. And then when some people left Jesus, he looks at them and he's like, are you going to leave too? And what did they say? Where should we go? Where are we going to go? You have words of eternal life. They wanted to learn. They wanted to dig deep. They wanted that relationship with Christ. And, and I would suggest to you that, among other things, that's part of where that boldness comes from. They noticed they had been with Jesus. We need to be in Jesus' school. Yeah? All right. And you can have confidence, too, bearing the name because there's evidence in your favor. One of the little details that I think we missed, I'm, I noticed it kind of jumped out at me this week when I was studying it. Um, when they arrested Peter and John, apparently they arrested the lame guy too, previous, previous lame guy. Um, how do we know that, or what suggest, is suggestive of that? Well, they were taken that evening, they were held through till morning, and then you look at what it says here, and tell me if you don't, doesn't it look like they, they kept the lame guy overnight too? It says, but seeing the man who was healed standing, again, this is the next day, but seeing the man who had been healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another. How do you, see, see what I'm saying? He, he was held overnight. I'm, I'm, either that or they drug him back there in the morning, which would have been a, just a supremely stupid thing to do. There are a lot of miscalculations. Like, these guys were the cream of the crop, the, the Sadducees, but I tell you, some of the mistakes they made, like, who thought of the dumb question, by what name or what power did you, did you make this lame man walk? That was a dumb question. And you know, bringing that lame guy in the next day for part, to be part of the questioning, that seems like a colossal fail. Afterward, you know, they're watching the game footage, and they're like, okay, how could we do better next time? And, and Ananias is like, yeah, how about not bringing the lame guy back? Who did that? I told you, arrest them. That meant Peter and John, not that guy. You were supposed to send him home. I mean, what were they supposed to do? It was too late. There's the evidence standing right in front of them. 
the guy that had been lame all that time standing there. And I just picture Peter and John kind of standing there stoically, and then I see this, 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 uh, this formerly lame guy, and I just picture him like some kid with ADHD, you know. And everybody's looking at his brand new spanking new feet, you know. Don't you? Just a little bit. And what do you say about that point? It's the, it's the evidence. It's the sheer force of that miracle. They were stumped for words. Look at verse 16, saying, and this is after they've drawn off to themselves. So you know that somebody talked after the fact here. It says, saying, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny. Yeah, they were stuck, and they knew it. This was a conspicuous miracle, and I've said this several times as we've covered this, but it was just like it was right there for everyone to see. This guy had been wearing a hole in the limestone at that beautiful gate for 40 years. Look what it says. I'd I'd forgotten this, but look at verse uh, 22. It actually tells us the rough age of the guy. It says, For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Think of that. The people of God coming to the temple year after year. Sometimes, if you were, you were, if you were a really pious Jew, you would have gone there many times during the years, especially if you lived in that Jerusalem area. And over and over again, you're passing this guy for 40 years. That's evidence, isn't it? And it was staring them in the face. Do we have evidence like that? When we are to be bold for Christ, do we have a similar kind of evidence? I would suggest to you we do. And I don't by that mean that we have to get into a thing where we're chasing signs and wonders and this kind of a thing. Some people think that. I don't particularly think that's the case. First of all, we have the the miracle recorded for us in in the word of God, which is trustworthy. So we have this, this story is evidence. We have the empty tomb, which is a very hard thing for people to refute. But moreover, we're standing there, aren't we? Spiritually speaking, we're standing there saying, let me tell you how it is that I am standing before you, whole, forgiven, cleansed, full of hope redeemed, you know, all of those things, justified before God. We, we are evidence with, within our own redemption, we're evidence. And so we should be bold. The world may try to ignore that, but we'll be standing right there for them to see. And the enemy's resistance is vain. The enemy's resistance is vain. Have you ever been in a situation where someone was trying to tell you something and you were being polite because they were older than you or a position of authority, but you knew they were wrong? You remember George Bailey when he was just a kid and Mr. Gower gave him the wrong medicine and and he's like, you put something wrong in there, Mr. Gower. You remember that whole thing? He didn't deliver the medicine? No? Oh, well, that's a great part of the movie. You know, but but young George Bailey's like, yeah, he was told to take that to Mrs. So-and-so, but he didn't because he knew Mr. Gower had put put something bad in there. And, uh, You know, maybe you've been in that kind of situation. It seems to me here that the rulers have cooked their own goose, uh, you know, but they still are trying to save face. They're still trying to put on uh, the game face. Look what it says here in verse 17. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. Remember, they're always concerned about the name. 
So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. They don't want the apostles going around bearing, bearing witness to the name of Jesus. But their, but their warning here, their warning is toothless. They know, they, they can tell, even, you know, they're doing that, I, I think truly, they're just doing it to save face, but they know after all this, it's going in one ear and out the other. They know these guys aren't going to obey. You see, the enemy of the gospel, then and now, is really the same. Isn't it? What was the enemy of the gospel then? Paul says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and power. You know, the spirit of the air, the, the, the evil which is in the world. And that continues to this day, and they still hate the name of Jesus. And they're still resisting it. They're still forbidding us to speak in the name of Jesus in so many ways. I had this all worked out this week and written the sermon, and then um, I happened to run across a, an illustration. I went, oh, man, I'm going to have to bring that in. So, uh, yeah, this was a, this was a, a story about a, a woman that's uh, um, gone through persecution for the name of Jesus. Her name is Helen Barhani. Have you ever heard of her? Anyone? Helen Barhani. Um, yeah, Eritrean. She's an Eritrean over there near Ethiopia. But they held her in a metal shipping container for two years in the Eritrean desert. During the day, it got so hot that it would burn her. And then at night, it would get so cold that she would just lie there shivering all through the night for two years, for two years. But she said that she remembered how Paul and Silas took strength when they were in the Philippian jail by singing hymns. And she would sing hymns. And if people got close enough to hear singing the hymns and started banging, she would preach the gospel to them. Yeah, when she refused to stop preaching the gospel, they tortured her. She says, their goal was for me to deny my faith. Quote, stop saying Jesus. Stop saying Jesus. What were they concerned with? We don't want to hear the name of Jesus anymore from you. But they couldn't stop her. And all she could answer was, I cannot, I accept him unto death. I accept him unto death. See, the same powers that resisted the name of Jesus just different players, different human beings that are, that, are, that are voicing it. But that message coming from the darkness is still the same. Stop saying the name of Jesus. Stop proclaiming him. Stop proclaiming salvation through that one and only name. And, and, and meanwhile, we're like the Borg. We're like, yeah, resistance is futile. <laughs> you can say whatever you want to. You know, you can threaten us however you want to. But we're going to keep speaking the name until we no longer draw a breath. We must honor God. We must honor God. But Peter and John answered him, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Now, Peter and John are not anarchists. Peter and John would probably not understand the world in which we find ourselves today. The world today would, would kind of look at this as like, well, everyone has a right to be whoever they want to be. And that's all Peter and John are doing. Uh-uh. No. Peter and John lived in a world where there are authorities, legitimate external authorities. Their question is not, does anybody have a right to tell me what to do? Their only question is, who has that right? 
Who's in charge? Who is the ultimate authority? When two authorities are in conflict, when it comes to us as Christians, when it's, when it's between the authority of, of the state, for instance, versus the authority of the word of God, who's in control? I mean, they are just, Peter's just taking no prisoners at this point, I think. Because, you know, in essence, he's like, oh, well, hmm, I'm just this uneducated guy from Galilee, so... Help me out, you really smart people that teach the word of God. So if you're telling me to do something, but God would tell me to do it, hmm, who should I be listening to? <laughs> He's like, you answer the question. And they're, they're, they're stumped. They, they don't know even how to answer. The bottom line for us is we bear the name of Jesus. We're not as men that are trying to tear down the system. We aren't to be arrogant. We are people who are under authority, under that ultimate authority of God, but when we bear the name of Jesus, we are doing what God has commanded. And when people tell us to shut up and stop, that's not an authority that we have to listen to. Honor to him to whom honor is due. But obedience, when they're telling you to shut up about Jesus, uh-uh, no way. Finally, remember that the enemy's threats are vain. The enemy's threats are vain. Um, I think the word harumph should have somehow appeared in this, uh, in this passage because, again, the leaders are trying to hang on to just whatever amount of face they can save in, in all of this. They, you know, they have the upper hand on the one hand that they have authority, but they've just been completely decimated in this argument. It says, and when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. So what they did was they went from charging them to not speak to now threatening them if they did speak. That's just a minor difference, right? But it's, it's, it's kind of a progression. And it's not as though their threats were utterly empty because they will make good on this threat of, of like, punishing them. The next time they take them into custody, they're going to beat them, and then it's going to get worse, and the persecution is going to increase. By the end of the book of Acts, Paul is in a Roman jail. Peter is still alive, but within a decade, he'll be, he'll be um, done away with by the sword. And, and John, um, John will endure until he dies an old death, but he will go through persecution and uh, banishment to the Isle of Patmos. But here's the thing. The threats are vain, not in the sense that, that they cannot carry out those threats. They're vain because they will not deter the gospel. They will not stop the name of Jesus, no matter what they do to any one of us. That name is unstoppable. And as believers today, we have to, we have to look at that bottom line. We have to understand that. Threats will come, sure. Will all of their threats be realized against us? No, not all of them. Could some of them be? Could we face greater threat and, and, and greater persecution in this country? Of course. In fact, it, it looks like it's going that way. But the question we have to ask ourselves is, in the end, would that matter? Would that matter if we were called to suffer for the sweet and blessed name of Jesus, our Savior? No. No. I mean... Honestly, if God be for us, who can be against us? The psalmist says, the Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? 
You say, well, he can put you to death. And what would that matter? What would that matter? Because our lives are hidden with Christ in God. And he holds us eternally. He holds us fast, just like we got through singing. Proclaim the name of Jesus confidently, brothers and sisters. He is the only name. Did you know this? The only name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And we should be bold for that name because that name is unstoppable. And we confidently declare him to you who don't know him today. If you are here and you don't know the name of Jesus or you've not bowed the knee to him, if you've not confessed him as your Lord and Savior, we want to say, you know, Look at these ankles, look at these feet. How am I standing here today? How are we standing here today before you whole, whole, cleansed, redeemed, full of love and joy and peace? It's not me. It's not any one of these people. It's the name of Jesus. And by that name, you must be saved. Come to him. Believe in him and be saved. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love your name. We love your name. We are, we are made of flesh, Lord, and we can be so prone to fear, prone, Lord, to, to be ambivalent. But Lord, fix our eyes, fix our hearts upon your name. Help us to look away from our own self and our own shortcomings lord to help us to to just stay in your school and to be with you much lord fill us with your spirit fill this church with your spirit lord that we might be bold for the name of jesus and lord may that name be unstoppable in not only the midst of this congregation but in this city of great bend and to all parts of the world wherever you send us and we will give you the praise and the glory in jesus name amen